Welcome to an episode of the Tiffa Mahapi Show hosted by myself. The show explores the impact, whether famously or infamously, some of my guests have had on the world. I believe that opening businesses and, and the healthy capitalism without the corporations which destroy the environment, etc. I think be naive to say that we've completely overcome any polarizing or divisive issues on the racial front. We thank you for taking some time out to listen to the podcast. I think this COVID-19 pandemic has generally frustrated like all of us and a lot of people. Um, and more importantly, I think in South Africa, it has exposed some of the, the country's shortcomings, but specifically the government's shortcomings as far as uh, infrastructure, health, etc. Or would you say I'm being a little bit like cynical and pessimistic, or is this something you're picking up too? No, you're absolutely right. I was invited to moderate a panel organized by Dot Zadna, the IGF. And the panel discussion was on connecting the unconnected. And, and the call was Peter Mello from the DCDT, Philemon Mofukeng from ICASA, and Conrad Lopsa representing community networks. And Usasa was meant to be on the call, but they couldn't make it. And other parties also couldn't make it. But the impression around what I got around that discussion of connecting the unconnected was that, you know, a lot of the projects that were meant to kick off way before the pandemic, let's look at SA Connect, for instance. I mean, the timeline with SA Connect was meant to be 2013. I mean, the project started in 2013. We're well in 2021 and they haven't even started phase two. The department hasn't started phase two. And the justification or the excuse there of, of not having commenced phase two is because of COVID-19 and therefore, you know, the budget had to be shut. And I'm sitting there thinking, in fact, it's the pandemic that was meant to ensure rapid <laughs> rollout of infrastructure. You That's know, true. when you're posing these questions to the administrators, it's almost like, yeah, it's easier said than done. You know, they'll tell you there's processes and you're like, but this has been something that's been hanging since 2013. How many ministers have we had in this portfolio chasing SA Connect, you know? And I, I was just really disappointed even in their response. And the argument was, oh yeah, you know, and now on phase two, we're looking at moving from 10 megabits per second speed to 100 megabits. But I, I was thinking for the life of me, who came up with the 10 megabits per second speed? I mean, yes, phase one was, should have started in 2013, which didn't. But by the time phase one was implemented, the whole world understands. I mean, do your research. Look at your our commercial vendors. No one offers 10 megabits per second, especially for government institutions. I mean, <laughs> it's quite frustrating, but it's almost like, yeah, these jokes really write themselves because how are we then using COVID as an excuse for not implementing or connecting people. It's weird. And you're right. I mean, they do write themselves. It's, it's as if we, we score own goals intentionally as a country in terms of the decisions we make. Like the example you make with the broadband project. And isn't that just the thing that these political decisions or these political indecisions or delays or squabbling affect day-to-day -day lives of people, like for real, not, not just hypothetically affect them. Like the example of COVID you made, if we had the SA Connect project running, it would have been easier to do remote learning for public schools. It would have been easier to say to office workers who live in townships to say, 
look, you can work from home because we've got this broadband rolled out in, across the country, but we don't have it. And as you said, it was supposed to be rolled out in 2013. Yeah. And so everything affects everything, right? Now we have a much wider gap with our education system. And, and that is because of the government and partners dragging their feet uh, in their implement. And I think, unfortunately, when you have a case of what we have here in the country, and, and perhaps that's just the opinion of many critics, that when you have key resources handled by state-owned entities, you should expect such things to happen. But I don't think this should be the norm. I think they, there has to be a much stricter, I suppose, separation between oversight and daily operations. I mean, I tend to use telecoms examples because I'm in the industry, but when you look at the mandate of what our universal access fund is meant to do and essentially what it's doing currently, and when you look at the structure and, and political hand and involvement going on in the daily operations of the entity, it's no surprise that you can go to countries like Ghana and listen to them speak of the amazing impact of their universal access fund. You know, and then you come back home <laughs> and it's a complete different story. And every time it's, you know, we're waiting for the board, it's the oversight, you know, and it's just, it, unfortunately, it's that separation of oversight and the organization's mandate and daily operations. And, and that tends to have a gray area because then, you know, I, I am a political student, <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. Yes. So I actually (laughs) studied political science. Um, I did my undergrad in development and management with, that's with public admin and and political science. I did my honors in political science and then went to do my master's in public policy and comparative politics. So I am a political science scholar (laughs) by by trade. I'm I'm not shocked when I see politics play such a crucial role. And, and maybe disturbing role in, in the advancement of our country as far as telecoms is concerned. That's interesting. So perhaps we're talking to the future Minister of Communications. And <laughs> but, but we'll get to that. We'll get, we'll get to that. You, you mentioned Ghana, and I just remember that that's possibly the first place I saw you, the only place I saw you, because I think it was uh, 2018 or 2017, if I'm not wrong. It was- I think it was 2018 at the GIZ, huh? Oh, yes, yes, that's right, at the Jinakra, yes, yes. And I was panicking yes. because the customs had taken my passport for like a day. They took all our passports because... Yes. <laughs> because we just because saw we thought it was visa on arrival. And again, yeah. this speaks to the political backplay that happened because initially we were not wrong to assume that we'd it's get passport on arrival. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's re- visa on arrival, rather, because that was the norm. And so the then president then changed the rules, right? And and then now ordered that people from West African countries have to apply for visa prior to visiting the country. And so I think that region also then changed their... They reciprocated um, that, yeah. Yes, yes. And so because that only applies to South Africa, because our Kenyan friends would then apply, get into Ghana and then have visa on arrival. So it was, it was quite a... I, I was standing there laughing at how I have no, I mean, I don't have any context as to what had informed our governments to put that. But it also just highlighted how these borders just restrict so much, you know, work that we can do as a continent, because there we were 
struggling and standing there and essentially illegal <laughs> in Ghana. So. I mean, it had me worried because I arrived, I think I arrived at midnight or just after midnight and I was yeah. told that no, I have to leave my passport with customs at the airport and go yeah. to a hotel. And I'm thinking, what happens when I bump into police on the streets? Yeah. I mean, oh, if anything, God forbid, if anything happens to you, right? How do they identify you? Correct. Because so I'll just be a, you're a just John Doe. They put me in a, in a mortuary. Nobody will know that I even existed. Yeah. So yeah. there's our politics again playing. <laughs> on yeah, affecting our lives. Yeah, on these borders. It's, it's quite interesting. Yes, that's when we met in 2018 in Ghana. But before, I mean, there possibly are some people listening to this and they don't know who Dudu Kwanazi is. Could you just like give us a refresher of your career in ICT and what you're doing currently with Uju Digital? So Dudu Kwanazi is born and bred in the East End in Katlehong. I studied politics. I am the eldest of five. So raised by my grandmother, um, took politics. Essentially, the reason why I chose politics in my varsity career was out of frustration, essentially, you know, being from a previously disadvantaged background and just seeing how the cycle just keeps repeating itself. And in my mind at that time as a young girl, my plan was to study political science, study policy, and therefore as a policy analyst would be able to influence policies that would benefit the, the previously disadvantaged. And so that was that was the plan. That was the goal. I ran with it, came back. Uh, went and to further my studies, did a master's program at Montpellier, the university, um, the University of Montpellier. Came back with my master's, worked in the political environment, worked for the Democratic Alliance and the Gauteng office, went and worked for the city of Joburg under the Herman Washawa's administration. And that was when, uh, again, my frustrations with politics then came in that you know, I'm now sitting in the private office of a certain MMC, but, you know, I'm unable to reach, have the impact that I thought I would have, right? Because then all the work just gets driven down to council and, and politicians and political party, you know, waving their rights and their vetoes and et cetera. And so I recall expressing this frustration with a friend of mine who then introduced me to Eleanor Craig, who's the founder of Project Decise. And they came my my introduction or my career rather in, in the telecom space in 2017. I was then appointed as the chief executive officer of Project Isisre and served the organization, um, developed amazing scaling strategies that saw Isisre move from just Tswane alone to a footprint in seven provinces. And this time last year in 2020, um, tended in my resignation um, to, to focus on other pressing matters, um, both professionally and, and personally. And there was Uju Digital born. And currently, I am a director of Uju Digital. We are an ICT SME consulting company. Um, we offer an array of services, array of services to ICT SMEs. And essentially, Uju Digital is born out of me witnessing through my work at Isizwe, having worked with small ISPs, particularly Black-owned ISPs, and witnessing the barriers pertaining to the business processes that these Black ISPs face, uh, you know, things like sourcing funding, you know, your digital marketing presence, and just a validation of an ISP. You know, you'd find there is an already 
existing Black-owned ISP in Gatlehong, for instance. And yet, here's your neighbor down the road going and sourcing out a service from a big incum- incumbent, telco incumbent. So, and essentially, Uju sits down with these ISPs and we work with them to just understand where they want to go. We, we help them refine their goals, look at the gaps uh, of their organizations and, and identify opportunities. So that's what I'm currently doing in a nutshell. I also serve in a multiple boards because I, I'd like to believe I'm an, well, I'm a digital inclusion activist by heart, but I'm also an inclusion activist and inclusion in a sense of I serve in the Girl Code uh, Advisory Board and, and Girl Code works to assist young women enter into these in the tech and STEM related professions and as well as empower young girls in the STEM related um, skills. I also serve on other boards such as Easy Go Connect, which is an ISP based in the Eastern Cape and the Chris Honey Municipality. I also serve on other um, advisory roles and boards of other ISPs, both here in SA and in the continent, um, such as PM Wi-Fi in, in Lagos. And that's that's what I do currently. <laughs> I, I wasn't I wasn't sure if I should read an entire bio, but that is what I do, other than no, that's- a, a <laughs> Yeah. I think that's good because it gives us a context as to your work. But what's interesting is that it seems that you are focused on mostly telecoms, right? Would I be wrong? So, yes. I mean, that is where my fate, <laughs> where fate led me um, as of 2017. And um, I'm really grateful. I got the opportunity to be introduced to this industry because as you would know, the balance of, of representation as far as gender is concerned, uh, there's less women, particularly less executive women within the telecom space. And for me, in the beginning, and, and still is, was to you know affirm and help empower and, and use my voice to get more women and more young women and, into the telecom space. Um, but now, as I got exposed to the industry, I got even more passionate and involved and intrigued on just the inequality and the lack of attention that's being given to either community networks or these small black upcoming ISPs. And so I am also working with a couple of other colleagues in the industry um, on the foundation of the Affordable Access Coalition. And essentially what we've termed it the AAC, what the core AAC differentiates in relation to other industry bodies is that we focus more on affordable access, specifically rural and underserved areas. We're trying to address the supply and demand of dynamics as well as addressing these economies of scale. But we're giving more attention to markets, consumer education and advocates and working with the user and listening to the user and saying, this is the state of our telecoms industry. As the user, you are the key. Um, you are the key partner, and and essentially, as you could think of the AAC as a multi-stakeholder coalition to bring about a focus on more on policy representation for the small guys as well as users. So that is one of the other passion projects that I'm currently involved with. So, I mean, given the the, the boards, I'm just listening now. Apart from Uju and, and all that. It sounds like you're still very much an activist. 
although it's got a tech, a telecoms and tech slant to it. I think once you're a political science scholar, <laughs> it tends to follow you. Your approach to these things does tend to follow you. So I, I would agree with you. I would say yes. <laughs> I would say yes. You're absolutely right. Okay. And, and does that mean that we might see you running soon in the DA? <laughs> <laughs> It's such a team that different. No. So, so no, I, I, I just want to put it in record that I, I worked for the Democratic Alliance, but I, I never ran or had any ambitions to be a okay. politician. Okay. So remember, I, I worked for the DA in 2015, um, from yes, 2015. Yeah. And when I came back into the country, I was this young, ambitious girl with three degrees. I was, I was barely even 22 and just looking for work. This is the case for most South Africans and, and a majority of young people just fresh out of university. You're, you're looking for work and you're knocking at doors. And it was just so disheartening to be constantly told that I'm overqualified. <laughs> and um, you throw your net out there and you kind of hope for the best because, you know, you have to feed the family. Like I said, I'm, I'm the eldest of five and you have to look after you know, and at that time, the Democratic Alliance was the only political party that gave me an opportunity when I was just fish from Montpelier and looking for an opportunity. So it, it wasn't essentially a coincidence of um, ideologies or shared ideologies. For me, it was an opportunity to learn, uh, an opportunity to put my skills and to work and an opportunity to, to bring about an impact that pushed me to study political science. That's interesting. Now I want to move back to internet access. You were talking about helping Black-owned ISPs or ISPs in, in townships or previously disadvantaged areas. And I think I've heard this, and I know you guys were working on this at Project Decisor too. There's always this question of how should we be, and when I say how, I'm talking about the, the business model, if I may, or the model of how should we be delivering internet access to the general population, should it still be a profit-making exercise or should it be a purely utility service like we have with electricity and water or should it be a mixture of both? I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. That's quite an interesting question <laughs> and a very deep one. In fact, in a sense that I did a TEDx presentation on this in 2017 about how I believe internet access should be akin to human rights as stipulated by the UN. And we tried to do that with the city of Tswane. And I think what we need to bear in mind is that with projects like the ones Cesar did with the city of Tswane and in other parts of the province, yes, you tend to have two things. You tend to have your, your beneficiaries and, and someone is paying for that. It's free to the end user, but someone is paying for that. And, and so that was the model. And essentially, you know, you have other companies, you had other companies such as Vast offering this free Wi-Fi at airports and then using ads to monetize it. And, and unfortunately, then you find the conundrum of if you're offering the service for free, the, the perception is that the quality would be poor, right? And so that's why you have your big guys like your Seacom or your Vuma then saying would offer you the service at the comfort of your own home for X amount of rands at X amount of speed. And that's what commercializes it. And this is akin to the whole tap water and bottled water, right? That we all have access to tap water, which ought to be free or free, at, you know, depending on the argument. But, you know, 
then you have access to tap water, which is of great quality or sourced away from sourced from a spring of some kind. So the same is with with the internet. That yes, it could be for free, and that's why you see cities like the city of Joburg, the city of Tony coming up with these initiatives. But the amount of freeness that if that's even such a word is limited, as of the case of the city of Tony, because then you it's limited to the hotspots. So hence. Essentially, in the beginning, it was internet within walking distance. So what happens when it's nighttime or it's raining and you need access to this? And that's where your mobile network operators then come into play with the mobile data. And that's essentially what most underserved communities then, you know, relate to. Because if you go to a community like at the home and you have a mother of three who's, you know, roughly earning less than 3,000, taking and a contract with Vuma, for instance, which is be unheard of. So the reliance on mobile data is, is quite the norm. That's where it, it gets, you know. So you have guys like Asizwe and, you know, other community networks and other guys in the space arguing for people to get access to the internet for free in public areas. But once you start having the conversation of, I'd like internet at the comfort of my own home, then the role of your private commercials comes into play. And that's when now the opportunity for Black-owned ISPs are to be recognized and promoted. That's interesting. That that brings me to my sort of follow-up question or follow-on question from that, because you mentioned a very important... I remember with... uh, before I get to my question with past, which liquidated, if I'm not wrong, or was pulled out. Yeah. They were rolling out in Deep Street. I was there when they were rolling out in Deep Street. And they were rolling out fiber with uh, various sort of establishments like your Shisanyamas, your saloons as Wi-Fi hotspots around Deep Street, running off that fiber. And my follow-on question is based on that. You talked about getting now getting that internet access into homes and getting it into people's homes and not just via Wi-Fi. Obviously, I mean, you'd know this better than I do. It is cheaper to have fiber in the ground for providing internet than doing it via mobile network. So instead of having MTN, Vodacom, ZLC, or any of those guys providing broadband internet access, it is actually cheaper for the consumer, I'm I'm saying, to have a service provider that's running fiber in the ground or any form of cable in the ground and then providing it that way. Now the question becomes, how do we get this? You're talking about ISPs and townships. How do we get this capital for them? or How do we get this fiber all over the country outside of government and SA Connect? So, I mean, there's just so much happening. And I think the industry has continues to evolve, right? And I mean, we have amazing technology innovations coming up. You know, you have TV white space that ICASA now said they're going to implement the regulation as of the 1st of April for community networks and ISPs based in rural communities to to then utilize the TV white space uh, spectrum to connect people in rural areas. You have that, you have aerial fiber so no we don't all have to trench so the issue that comes with all of this is because a majority of black owned ISPs are very small one you know when you speak and this is a frustration of of many of them when you have these conversations with them the first thing that always comes up on the table is that you know we we lack financial muscle so you know we don't even have the the financial capability to invest in, in fiber rollouts, right? So that's why we, we've gone the wireless route and wireless microwave route. 
But there's other innovations coming through, such as TV white space and aerial fiber. And I think this is when we need to have the conversations with our municipalities, with our provinces, that, you know, here we are with with these big uh, telcos who can afford to trench and dig as they please, and they're doing that now in, in our township. But here are the guys that are doing the work within the community, and they should be prioritized to do the work in the community. But unfortunately, because of the lack of, you know, inverted commas, financial muscle, they then locked away from getting things such as your wavy, right? And that just becomes a barrier. And so you're finding um, a SIPO who's now running his ISP, who has no choice to become a reseller, the big institution. So, and and this is, for me, is an issue because, because therefore, you know, we need to revisit the policies. We need to revisit how the funding institutions, such as your DBSA, your DTI, look at funding innovation, our innovative projects, and because they weigh or they tick boxes or their requirements of typically funding technology uh, initiatives, it's very much outdated, right? And doesn't take into consideration projects such as your community networks, right? Uh, as well as the smaller ISPs. And, and we need to have a balance and, or at least what I, I would say, we need to now have a a, a full-on conversation between our local municipalities, the policymakers, as well as funding institutions to say, this is the reality, this is what's happening. And if we do not fix such processes or have such dialogue and revisit such policies, we're going to find ourselves in a situation where we have your Facebook, your Google, as they did in the Western Cape, coming in and then saying, we'll offer you connectivity. I just want us to note that the whole colonialist interest or the Western interest from these big service providers isn't to come and offer free internet. The idea or the goal is to, we are seen as commodities that can be monetized. So we're getting excited and we're thinking your big brands like your Google or your Facebook are coming and bringing internet. It's not essentially bringing internet. Yes, it is because we're connecting and we're able to, you know, use Google, but at the expense of us becoming that commodity to be monetized. And that takes away from the smaller guys. You raise a very important point because I don't know if our policymakers or politicians or the people in charge don't see this, that by allowing such uh, organizations to come in and thinking that they're offering these services for free, you give away a certain level of, and in my view, you give away a certain level of sovereignty because telecommunications is such an important thing for a country, for a state. Absolutely. In that Absolutely. matter. Because it's, not, it's no more just about food security, military security, finance security, etc. But telecommunications uh, uh, sovereignty plays a very key role. So letting your Facebooks, your Googles just run rampant and own like your public telecoms infrastructure, especially for the masses, for the majority of Absolutely. people, it's yeah. just irresponsible by politicians. Yeah, because now think of it this way, right? Because telecoms is... It's, it's just the end and be all. I mean, we're, we're seeing it now with, with the pandemic. You know, if you're not connected, you're doomed, <laughs> you know. Um, so imagine just if you control the lines of communications in the country, you've won. You've essentially won. You're now in charge of, of the way people consume content, of the content people consume, of just essentially their development, their their education. And I think that it's just fundamentally 
worrisome and concerning that the powers that be <laughs> are not looking in, at it in that sense. Yeah, it, it is worrying. And I don't, I don't know how they view it, or maybe they need to change their model of, of thinking about telecoms because it's no more, I mean, you, 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 you said it correctly, it's no more a small thing. It's a very important thing for a country. It's no more just uh, the internet, if I can put it that way. It's no more just something that kids use for apps or whatever, as some yeah. other people think. It's yeah. integral part of running business, of running a country and running organizations. And just our lives in general. I mean, financial systems now, almost all of them run off the internet. So Absolutely. it's a very, very important part of a country. Yeah. Now, I mean, what what would you say then going forward we need to do specifically South Africa, not not the rest of the continent, because different countries are at different development stages as far as telecoms go. What would you say needs to be done in South Africa apart from sorting out the mess that is SA Connect? So I think we need to work on our multi-stakeholder approach, right? And I'm saying this because with the work that I've been doing either through CISWA or currently with Uju Digital. And I've been observing being, you know, inside as, as an active stakeholder is that the reason there's a plethora of these projects um, geared to bridge the digital divide is because all the departments are working in silos and the private sector is working in silos and civil society in the form of non-for-profits in the form of community networks that are working in silos because out of pure frustration, right, out of pure frustration that we have these brilliant policy documents that speak to addressing these issues in the community, but the implementation part, then it becomes obviously mirrored by political vested interests, um, it becomes the politics of the stomach, you know, who's in charge on the day or who needs whatever. But we haven't yet mastered as a country our multi-stakeholder approach and delivering services to our people and effectively running our country. Because if we all came into the, and, and utilize and make use of a multi-stakeholder approach and really sat down and listened to what civil society has to say, to what business has to say, and try to find what strategists would call a partner, you know, on what is the best alternative solution or outcome in the best interest of our country. And I think it's very, we're working in silos in different departments, and that's why you go into social media or you open a newspaper article, you're finding the gift of the givers is doing an excellent work versus what a department of a certain province is meant to do because we're working in silos and we need to strengthen our multi-stakeholder partnerships in the best interest of our country. And I think I absolutely believe that is what we lack in currency as a country. It's a very great point you make in terms of multi-stakeholder approach because, again, I'll go back to what we were talking about in terms of Facebook and them offering teleco- uh, internet access, in that the current state seems to be that if government can't do it, it must be privatized. That seems to be the whole thinking most people think, not just in IT, but across the board. Like, if government can do it, everybody screams, no, we must, we must mm-hmm. privatize. And that yeah. also has, has repercussions, even, in, if it, even if it's South African companies, even if Absolutely. it's Facebook, even if it's not Facebook or, or Google or any American companies. It has repercussions because we can't, again, sovereignty thing, we can't remove certain services that are supposed to be delivered as public services. And it goes back to a point you mentioned earlier in terms of 
yourself being a digital inclusion activist, we can't, it, it ends up creating a bigger digital divide because if you're running this as a for-profit, if you're running public services, whether it be health, policing, or, or internet access as a for-profit activity, you end up widening that gap because those who don't have money eventually get a poorer service or no service at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What would you give your advice over and above in terms of, of what you just mentioned in terms of multi-stakeholder approach? What would you be what would be your advice to the Minister of Communications currently in terms of just a broader ICT uh, strategy for the country and taking it forward? And beyond for IR, just generally in ICT terms. Yeah, our our famous buzzword. <laughs> I, I think so I my advice and <laughs> my advice would be listen you know i think there's power in listening what our current government tends to do is be so great at benchmarking other countries and learning what others are doing and have done well and then coming and then saying well based on our geopolitical situation this would be a perfect fit like you know sort of like a glove and hand situation and what as a result the rejection or the lack of implementation or lack of implementation of projects is out beyond the whole multi-stakeholder approach. It's just listening, you know? The roadshows shouldn't be about saying, this is the product we have, you know, we're, we're going to switch off your TVs, we're moving digital. That's all good and well because the whole world has moved digital and we're still here. But listen, listen to the citizens have to say, listen to what the youth has to say, listen to what the youth is busy building and their tech hubs and the community tech hubs and listen to what the youth are saying on the streets. Listen to the young people part of tech setups. Listen to the go-go's in these communities that are utilizing the social networks to communicate with their families. I think listening is a really underestimated form of skill and a very key component of leadership because if you listen, you're able to drive change with people and partnership with people and drive effective change. And you're able to learn and be educated on what could possibly work and what didn't work and how we can all move forward to ensuring what would work in the best interest of our country. And I think our politicians just don't listen. I think they don't listen. I think they do all these roadshows to show us the new projects and to rub in these new policies and bills that they've cooked up for us. And then then saying, well, this is an opportunity for you to tell us how you feel about this. Well, isn't that a bit, you know, putting, <laughs> you know, the, the card before that? Because the process is already done. You've, you've already cooked up this bill. You've already cooked up this policy and the strategy. And now you're coming to say to me, so, you know, this is a public consultation. How does that work? This isn't going to benefit the community. This isn't benefiting the country because you've already made up your mind on, on what to do moving forward. And so what we will then do is to then come in and give our input on, on something you've already made up. So 
I think it should be the other way around. I think our leaders should learn to listen and and just put listening as as one of the key components in and building policies and driving initiatives and strategies, particularly as far as digital strategy is concerned for our country. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> it does answer my question, and you would make a great minister of communications, but that's a topic for future discussion. Thanks for I am not a politician. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your time, Didi. Remember to tell your friends, family, and colleagues that the show is available to listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, or any other app that you use to listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to head over to www.iafrican.com forward slash radio. That is www.iafrikan.com forward slash radio. And subscribe to get notified on new episodes and any other iAfrican radio shows. Stay safe on the web.